All right, so we are working through what's called, largely called the household table. Uh, it's uh, this discussion of headship and submission of husbands and wives, of order in the home and roles and all this stuff that is hard and challenging, uh, that Satan has been attacking since the garden, uh, and we, by the power of the Spirit and the Word of God, would love and are trying to see Christ redeem in this place and in our hearts. I want to begin with this thought. Headship has been made to be so many wrong, just plain wrong concepts. Headship, I think part of, maybe if we can track a little bit of history, some of this is speculation, but I think headship has, at some point in the past century, particularly, has been mistaught, misunderstood, and then as what comes with, I don't think we understand this, but what typically happens when uh, something of Scripture is mistaught or misunderstood, eventually it's rejected. Um, and rightfully so, but it's just usually that it's not rejected and replaced with the right thing, it's rejected and replaced with more wrong things. Uh, headship, just the same. Headship to many means just simply this, the buck stops with me. Now, I believe that it means that, but the problem is that it means a whole lot more before it gets to that. The question was asked in our house gathering, like, well, what do you do when there's a disagreement between the, the husband believes this is what we should do and the, the wife believes this is what we should do? What, 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 how do we deal with that? How would you counsel that? And I said, well, ultimately, I would ask why you got to that point in the first place. Because headship is more than just what matters in that moment. It matters in the years and the days and the weeks and the months leading up to that moment of disagreement. Now, I believe there's clear scriptural guidance for what should happen in that moment. But there's more to it than just what happens in that moment. So headship, yeah, I, I believe it means, I think the scriptures teach, the buck stops with me, if you will. But it means a whole lot more than that. But if we just simplify it to that, we miss the point. And I think this is, this is just kind of characteristic of our culture anyways. Uh, I, I don't, I don't want to venture to say around the world, but at least in our Western civilization, American culture, we like to draw easy lines. We don't want to think through the difficulties of how things apply. And, and maybe that line isn't quite as straight as we want it to be and, uh, and so what we say is we want to simplify headship down to it just means that the husband has the final say. It's a whole lot more than that. But to others, headship means that the wife is to serve the husband. Right? He, when he gets home, he gets to kick off his shoes and she brings him coffee and uh, he doesn't have to do anything else the rest of the night. Now, I I don't think that anyone in here particularly struggles with that, but that is certainly a prevailing thought of what headship and submission looks like. I mean, to our culture, you've got to understand, if we use the words headship, submission, roles in the marriage, those kind of things, that, that largely our culture looks at it that way, and they reject it as such, and they should. A lot of what the culture rejects in headship and submission is, should rightly be rejected. We should reject it as well. For many in this room, headship means that you, husband, when you finally speak up about something, that the family is to follow. That kind of rings a little bit, like it's connected to my first thought of the book stops here. But headship is more than that. It's not just you husbands get your way when you finally stop being lazy and make a decision. That's not what headship is. And if we simplify it to that, we're missing many things, certainly flourishing in our family and honor to God. So last week, we started this conversation, really, in verse 25, about what healthy, godly, biblical headship is supposed to look like. 
we discovered that this headship is to be driven by sacrificial love for his wife. That the husband's leadership is driven by sacrificial love for his wife. That he is to lay down his life for his wife as Christ laid down his own life for his bride. And that any leadership in the home that comes from some place other than sacrificial love of his wife is none other than love for himself and will be wrong. It will be dishonoring, it will be unhelpful, it will be unkind, it will be sinful. Period. So if you want a line to draw, there's a good line that you can draw. Paul says that husbands, the expectation is that you love your bride with nothing less than the love that Christ had for his own bride. That's the expectation. And I made the comment last week, some of you wives have been settling for much less than what you should even be settling for. And husbands, you've been holding the bar way down here for yourself. And when you think the bar is here, no, the bar is way up there. You know, at the heart, we talked about at the heart of man in general, particularly husbands, is this war to love oneself supremely or to love Christ supremely, and then subsequently loving their wives or to love their wives as Jesus loves the church. So we talked about the sacrificial love as this foundational point of what headship looks like. I would argue all biblical leadership must come from this similar sacrificial love. This week, we're going to talk about a little bit of a different aspect of this love. Last week was sacrificial love. This week, I want to talk about sanctifying love. So if you're looking for a title, this week is headship. This call to a sanctifying love, to lead with a sanctifying love. You know, our, our, our culture is promoting this idea of you just need to love me the way I am, right? You shouldn't try to change me. You need to love me for who I am. That's ludicrous. I'm glad Sarah doesn't love me for who I am because um, I don't want to be who I am. I want to be who I am in Christ, and I want her to love me as such and to love me to that. So, sanctifying love. This flies in the face of our culture and in many of our, even our own mindsets. Here's kind of a, the main thrust. That I, if you don't get anything today, like you, you can listen, you can write this point down, remember that, apply it, and you don't need to listen to anything else I say. Here's what I want you to get. The husband's primary role. The husband's primary role is to lead his wife to greater confidence and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. The husband's primary role is to lead his wife to greater confidence and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is his role. I'm going to say it one more time. I want to make sure you get it down. The husband's primary role is to lead his wife to greater confidence and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the husband's primary role. That's what headship looks like. That's what the fruit of loving your wife with the love that Christ has for the church, that's, that will be the necessary result of that headship. Everything you say, husbands, every decision you make, every personal thought you have and the fruit thereof, everything is to serve this purpose 
of leading your wife to greater confidence and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything. The amount of time you put into studying your Bible. The way you demonstrate submission to authority. The way you pray. The way you deal with your emotions. The way you work through sin. All of those things are to serve the purpose of leading your wife to greater confidence and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what we're doing is we're beginning to put feet, kind of put some flesh, if you will, to the bones of how do I love my spouse with the sacrificial love that Jesus had for the church. In Ephesians 5, 25-27, he says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the dead would be brought to life. And that the dark spots of our hearts would be illuminated. And in the places that are serving and honoring you, that they would be more robustly doing so at the end of today. Father, may we be affirmed in the things that we are doing well that honor you. And may you illumine those areas that are not. For your glory. Amen. Here's my first of really just two thoughts today. Husbands, lead your wife to greater confidence and faith in the gospel by making sure that the Word of God is increasingly present in the home. So we're, we're getting at this, how am I going to do this? Right? So this will be pretty practical. How do I do this? By making sure, husbands, your role if you're going to lead your wife in this way, this has to happen. Do you make sure that the Word of God is increasingly present in the home? Now here's the deal. Men, just taking and going to church. Just throwing some words about the Bible out there every once in a while. Praying together when you eat meals. That doesn't cut it. That's not what we mean. Verse 26. Let's see what we mean. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So let's just talk about this like theologically. What is he talking about here? And then we're going to talk about the application and the implications for the husband. The first thought there says that he might sanctify her. What's, what's he mean? What's the idea of sanctify her? Basically the idea that Christ gave himself up in order to make her holy. Right? This idea of sanctify is to, to make holy, to set apart. But keep that hold of that idea, to make holy. That he might make her holy. Then he says, having cleansed his bride. To make her holy, having cleansed his bride. You see, the means by which she is made holy is by Christ cleansing her. Right? So there's this stuff on her called sin that has to be washed away. So he cleanses her. This is beautiful. Paul is reminding us, reminding us of the cleansing forgiveness available in Christ through the Word. Now, cleansing, again, is this idea. So we have this idea of sanctify and this idea of cleanse. What's the difference? This is to make holy. What's, what's the difference? Cleansing here is the idea of removing sin, while sanctification or the sanctifying focuses more on the setting apart idea, like set apart for God, as we're cleansing is the idea of the re actual removal of sin. So Paul is telling us 
that he has set the church apart to God, which is sanctification, by removing our sin, cleansing. And he says this, by the washing with water through the word. Now Paul, big picture here, has in mind this corporate body of Christ being purified and cleansed from sin and prepared for marriage. You should go read uh, Ezekiel 16, verse 1 through 14. 15 starts getting pretty uh, not so good. Uh, You can continue on reading. But Paul particularly has in mind 1 through 14. I think Paul is thinking as he's writing this, Ezekiel chapter 16. It's it's known as the marriage bath passage. It's an incredible passage. If we have time today, and I don't use it all preaching, I might read it later uh, in the service. So Paul has in mind this corporate body, this cleansing of the body of Christ and preparing her for marriage. But I want you to also see something here that's very unique. It's not very unique. It's just very, uh, if you just glance over this passage, you're going to miss it. And that is Paul is reminding us here. Paul is communicating to us that this is something that has already happened. That there's a a position. So when we think of sanctification, I don't want to use a ton of big terms here. We think of progressive sanctification. There's also positional sanctification. So her position is one as having one who has been sanctified, one who has been made holy and set apart. And there's also progressive sanctification where we're still on this side of eternity that that is increasingly becoming the reality. Paul is has in mind this idea of positional sanctification that and I mean, just notice the language that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, like having done this. She's been prepared. The point is, is that in the past, at a given point, she was cleansed completely of her sin and set apart to God for his service. This is important. And it's going to come back later, particularly towards the end of today. This is already a reality. Just, just if you're taking notes, mark this down. We don't live as though this is a reality. Like we struggle to live as that. And then you're going to connect that. You can draw a line to like the end of the sermon when we come back to that. Now this cleansing, okay, so this cleansing that brought about, that made the sanctification, what is this cleansing? He says, by the washing of water through the word. Now listen, there's like debate, is, is he referring to baptismal, uh, like, like water baptism, what's, what's going on here? Honestly, I'm not going to get into that. Here's what I want you to see, 1 Corinthians 6.11. He says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Whether or not he's, Paul's connecting this idea of water baptism or just spiritual baptism, the point, I, Paul would certainly not be affirming any kind of salvific qualities of water baptism. That would certainly not be Pauline in any case. But what I want you to see is Paul's emphasis here is that the washing has happened through what? The Word. Has happened through the, the Word of Christ. The Word of the Gospel. So at the very least, Paul is talking about a spiritual cleansing that takes place at the, hear, hear me, at the hearing and believing of the Word of the Gospel. That there's this cleansing, there's this washing and removal of sin and being made sanctified at the hearing and the believing of the good news of Jesus Christ as the ransom for sinners. That there, I, I want you to just think about that for a moment. 
Now, this should not be a day it goes by that you do not dwell on that thought. You want, you want the word to be the prevailing thought in your home, the prevailing voice in your home? It's going to have to begin with that being the prevailing thought in your own mind. That I have heard and have been led to believe that Jesus was the ransom and the price paid for my sin. You see, it is through the word of the gospel that we are cleansed positionally. We are made fully sanctified before God. It is through this, this, this word of love, right? We're talking about this, this idea of Jesus loving the bride. So it's this word of love. This word of the gospel is, is connected to Jesus' love. And so it's through this word of love that Jesus binds, hear me, hear me, binds himself, commits himself to the church and brings the church to himself in love. Think about that concept. And think about what that means as a husband. In love, in spite of her, in his love for her, binds himself to her, and in love brings her her to himself. Keep a hold of that thought. So in one sense, the work of cleansing is done. However, as we know, in another sense, there is still cleansing to be done. We are still, this is kind of that already not yet thing that we talk about all the time, particularly in Paul. There's this sense in which God views us through the blood of Christ and we're totally sanctified and the job is finished. There's another sense in which this is still being worked out. And Christ is involved in that too. It's not just the other part, but he's involved in the progressive part as well. So I want you to see is that Christ's sanctifying work is a pattern for husbands. That's what Paul's saying. Christ's sanctifying work is a pattern. It's a, it's a model. It's something for husbands to look at and go, now how can I live in light of that pattern? So here you go, husbands. Here's the deal. Same thing with last week. You have to study the love that Christ has for the church. And you need, you must go to the scriptures to define that. Because here's my guess. Many of you define Christ's love for the church wrongly. Because you define it based upon experiences alone. You define it good and bad experiences. Instead of going, okay, letting the scriptures define what does this love look like? What's the same thing here? What does this sanctifying love look like? What does it look like for Christ to sanctify his bride? So here's some thoughts in that line of thinking. First is this. Husbands should love their wives in a way that helps her grow and likeness to Christ. I know that's not very profound, but most of the scriptures are not concerned with being profound. Husbands should love their wives in a way to help her grow in likeness to Christ. All right, men, look at me. I'm going to ask you a question. Is your wife more like Christ because she is married to you? Or is she like Christ in spite of being married to you? Let that sink in for a second. Is she more like Christ because she's married to us? Or is she like Christ in spite of us? Husbands, let me 
exhort you here. You must be concerned chiefly for her spiritual well-being. You must be. You must be. Like, husbands, you should be more concerned about her spiritual well-being than her living in a nice, safe home. I mean, that's important too. But I think some men think that their provisionary like work and their concern for their wife starts and stops at the bringing a paycheck home and giving us a house and food to eat. Like, that's part of it. But you should be concerned chiefly for her spiritual well-being. Listen, I, this is my observation. That many men, and, and, and I think this is even prevalent in this church, that we simply care whether or not our spouse is alive. Not whether or not she is thriving, let alone thriving in Christ. That is our role. That is our goal. That is our primary responsibility. So let me give you some thoughts here. Like, what, what should you be thinking about? What does it look like to be concerned chiefly with their spiritual well-being? You should know how your wife is doing in theological knowledge. Meaning, how is she growing in knowing God? You should be concerned about that. You should know, like you should know, how is she doing? Where, what are some theological things that she's trying to sift through and, and understand and wrestle with intellectually and, 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 and trying to grab a hold of? And What are some things that she's struggling with? Listen, 9.9 times out of 10, when I sit down into a counseling session, if the couple or the person would know what the Bible has to say about their situation, we wouldn't even be having a conversation. So husbands, when, I, when, I, when, I, when we have discussions about how, how is your wife doing and these kind of things, it's going to be, how are you leading her in the Scriptures? What do you know about her understanding biblically? So here's another thought. I don't want to belabor that one too long, but... Knowing how your wife is doing in her spiritual disciplines. Do you know how much time she spends in the Word? Do you know how well her time is spent when she spends time in the Word? Do you know what she's studying, what she's reading through? Do you know what she's praying? What's her prayer life look like? How about fasting? All the spiritual disciplines, you should have a gauge of what that looks like in your spouse's life. And husbands, I would say, I would argue that you need to help your wife make room in her life for spiritual disciplines. Not just say, hey wife, you should be doing this. You're missing the point. But here I'm just talking about like having concern, and concern starts with at least wrapped up in this, at least knowing what's going on. How about this? Know how your wife is doing in service in the local church. And what I mean is, okay, she, uh, okay, so she's in the nursery every four weeks. Cool. All right, so I know what she's doing in service. Like, not in service, but in serving the local church, right? More than that. How is she doing to be hospitable with people in the body? Is she sitting around waiting on other people to come to her? Or is she pursuing relationships with other people? What is she doing? Are you helping her move towards others? Are you helping her stay where she's at? How about this? In her servitude, are you, do you know how her heart is responding in servitude? Is she always coming to you saying, well, I wish so-and-so would be thankful 
Husbands, that's a clue. That's a clue. Because what's going on is they're doing what they're, they're serving to serve themselves, not to give of themselves to other people. But do you know how she's responding to you? Are you even giving it any deeper thought than just simply, okay, that must be what's going on. How about this? Do you know the status of her heart? The, the thought was brought up in house gathering this past week of knowing the pulse of your wife. I don't know who quoted it. I know who said it in house gathering, but I don't know who she was quoting. But knowing the pulse of your wife. Do you know her fears, her hopes, her dreams, her temptations, and her disappointments? Do you know those things about her? You must be concerned chiefly with her spiritual well-being. You need to shepherd her faithfully through these things. So husbands, you should love your wives in a way to help her grow in likeness to Christ. And then to capitalize kind of on the main thought here is that husbands should ensure that the Word of God is the prevailing voice in the home. Let me say that again. Husbands, it is your responsibility to ensure that the Word of God is the prevailing voice in your home. Not your voice, not your wife's voice, and certainly not your kids' voice. But God's voice. His Word. I want to be careful I don't jump on the pet peeves here, but it just blows my mind when kids become the prevailing voice in the home. That they dictate schedules. That they dictate life. Certainly, they're important. But God's voice is most important. His word is where he has spoken and left his voice for us to hear. You see, the mention of the, the, the idea of the word, like, if you think, again, just understanding this in context, what's Paul going to say about this later in chapter 6? He says this in verse 17 And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. What's Paul saying? I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to expose it all because we're going to get to this later. But this refers to the Word of God. And what is the Word of God here? It is the power. Listen to me, husbands. It is the power against evil that threatens both the individual and the home. You want to defend the home from evil? First, you've got to wake up to the fact that it's being attacked by evil. And then you've got to defend it. How? With your loud voice? With your sternness? With your grasping of your emotions and experiences from the past, all those are weak. God's Word stands strong. Paul doesn't say protect your home by remembering experiences from 10 years ago. He said protect your home by the Word of God. And listen, it's not that we stop at the Gospel specific, meaning like when we think about the good news of Jesus dying on the cross as a ransom for sinners, like that's the gospel specific. We don't stop there. But the whole truth of Scripture is founded upon and points to and is a result of this gospel. Like what Martin Lloyd-Jones says, what is the word that teaches us sanctification and which sanctifies us? The answer is, of course, that it is the whole Bible. The whole of the truth that you find in the Bible or in any one of these New Testament epistles. 
I want to say this with gentleness, but I want to be firm. It's amazing to me how little scripture is spoken, spoken in the houses, even in this congregation. Is it the prevailing voice in your home? Is it the determining voice in the home? Like we can talk about fluffy things about the Bible all the time, but is it the, is it the determining, prevailing voice? We go back to the Scriptures. Listen, this is life and breath for your family. And we often talk about anything and everything but. But I want you to be careful. Because just because we talk about the Bible in our homes doesn't mean it's the right kind of talk, right? So we want to be careful. And I think oftentimes we can consider ourselves Bible talking, speaking homes. But if we fall into one of these two categories, it's probably not what Paul has in mind. Maybe you talk about the Scriptures. Maybe you talk about them as some unrelated intellectual concept to be grasped. I've ran into people like that. Where they want to talk about the Bible at this kind of this mental, intellectual level only. And it never moves beyond that. Guys, the Word of God is not just some academic thought to be tossed to and fro and to be batted around. It's something to be understood and something to be revered and respected. Or, maybe it looks more like this. You speak in very lofty, super spiritual and mystical ways. Oh, God is so good. Oh, God has provided for us once again. And that's about the extent of your theological discussion and the word prevailing in your house. That which has no substance and no application. That's not good either. Listen to this quote from someone I read this week. It said, Husbands who are aware of the importance the apostle places on Scripture for the blessings and protection of the home will take steps to ensure its witness without having to be pressured by their spouses. I want to encourage you with this thought practically. You need to understand a lot of biblical knowledge in order to distill it into very fine application. You guys understand the distillery process? Actually, I looked it up this morning, but I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go through that. But you have to take a whole lot of material, and it gets distilled down to something very fine and usually very tasty. I said that for all my Baptist friends. Biblical knowledge. You have to, like, if it's going to get down to fine application, it's got to be there. All right, that's enough. I won't belabor that point. Next thought. Husbands should ensure that the Word of God spoken in the home, hear me, consistently speaks of the reality of God's provision for His people. Husbands, this is key. Because if you just go around, well, God's Word says this, and God's Word says we need to do this, and and this is what faithful obedience looks like, and this is, listen to me carefully. If, If the prevailing thought communicated from God's voice as the prevailing voice in the home is not this, that God has provided for His people, then you will be communicating nothing more than legalism. 
Let me say this again. Let me say the thought here. Husbands should ensure that the Word of God spoken in the home consistently speaks of the reality of God's provision for His people. That needs to be the prevail, like the, the top thought, if you will, coming out of the prevailing voice of the Scriptures. Why? Because that's what the text does. If you want to represent the, prevail, the, the voice of the Scriptures, when you read the Scriptures, the prevailing voice coming out of the Scriptures is God's provision for His people. Beginning to end. Even before the fall. All the way to Revelation is God is merciful and gracious and provided a way and a means and a relationship to be the bride of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the prevailing voice of the Scriptures. So your voice should be the same in the home. And then when you speak the Word of God, that it is always tightly informed and coupled with God's provision. Certainly God's provision of salvation, but also the gospel provision of freedom from sin and the enabling of gospel flourishing. They have to be combined. So every sermon that we preach in this church, we try to model that as well. That you see that the Bible expects this, and God has provided this. Last thought here is that husbands, if you love Christ, you will love the Word. And if you love the Word, then it will ooze from you. How, again, we're trying to get at what, how does it look like, how, how do we get to this Word being the prevailing voice in the home? Let me make a couple cautionary uh, statements here. We have to be so careful that we don't mistake legalism in our homes for making the Word of God the prevailing voice in our homes. Just because, men, listen to me, just because you ooze standards and claim you want to honor God doesn't mean the Word and the Gospel of grace is oozing from you. So men, if we think about how, how, how do we get at this word being the prevailing thought in our home? How do, we, how do we get at that? It's not just something you can schedule. Who, who in here grew up in, a, in a, like a traditional Baptist church? I just want to see. Look at that. Look at those hands. How many of you had revivals? Now you're a bunch of liars. Did you really have a revival or did you schedule a revival? I, well, I'm sorry. How many of you really had revivals? Like the Spirit of God broke out. People were saved and lives were changed. And Okay. I put in here, it's, you, can't, you can't just schedule the Word of God becoming to become the prevailing Word in your family. It doesn't happen that way. Now, maybe you do need to schedule some intentional times to be in the Word together with your spouse. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that's not enough. That's not going to result in lasting change to just schedule time. It's, it's, it's like those revivals in Baptist churches and, and, and other churches alike where we're going to schedule revival. I'm glad the Holy Spirit knows that on October the 3rd, Sunday morning through Wednesday, we're going to have revival. Uh, in just case He wants to show up. I mean, that's fantastic. So if I want the Word to become the prevailing voice, then maybe if I just schedule some strategic times that the Word will become the prevailing voice in my home. No, husbands, lasting change isn't going to happen that way. If you are to make the prevailing voice in the home the Word of God, it will have to be because it is the prevailing voice in your own heart. It's got to be that way. You won't fabricate it in your home. You can't sustain it in your home unless it is being sustained by the Holy Spirit in your heart. Now, now hear me clearly. You might need to schedule times each week to be in the Word and prayer together with your wife. 
You may need to do that for yourself first. I'm just saying, you can't depend on that to be your fix. It won't get the job done. It's got to start in your heart. Listen, if you love Christ, then, right, then this, this will display itself in your love for the Word. Not just, oh, I love Jesus, and I want to talk to my wife about Jesus. No, I love Jesus, and therefore I love His Word, because He is the Word. So if you love Christ, then conversations centered upon an ever-deepening understanding and love for the truth will increasingly abound in your home. So husbands, lead your wife to greater confidence and faith in the gospel by making God's word the prevailing, determining voice in your home. Listen, this, this is why we... In, in our shepherding class, men, we're talking about how the, the family and shepherding in the home goes hand in hand with the church and how they, they really are beneficial to each other, but they're both very important. Why? Listen, your elders, this church, the way we program this church and the things that we do as a body cannot ensure that the Word of God is the prevailing voice in your home. Only you can now, we can help you do that. We can encourage you and equip you to do that, and that's our role. We can hold you accountable to that. But if the voice of God is not the prevailing voice in your home, and it's television, or it's your selfishness, or it's friends, or it's the kids, or whatever it is, think about the impact that's going to have then on the body of Christ. So the prevailing voice, men, needs to be the Word of God. And you have the responsibility to ensure that that's the case. Listen, we're talking about headship, talking about being men. This is a whole lot different than what it looks like for our world, right? This is masculinity that looks very different than than the way our world would paint it as rough, tough, you know, long-haired, bearded, uh, you know, uh, hunting, um, animal-killing masculinity, right? There you go. Sorry, I butchered that one, but... Sorry, I was thinking, and maybe I don't know. That means you can still be a man in the home and wear skinny jeans. That's what I was thinking. (laughs) So, (laughs) there was, it pained me to say that. It just pains me to say that, but I say it. I believe it. (sighs) There was a Babylon Bee about that. Did you see that? It said something about the worship leader spilled coffee on his pants, so he wore his wife's pants to lead worship in. Yeah, and they were a little loose. (laughs) Okay, there you go. I got you to laugh one time. I'm doing good. Sermon number, I mean, point number two, husbands, lead your wife to greater confidence and faith in the gospel. Listen to me. This, this is gonna, I, hope, I, I hope awake some dead souls here by viewing and treating your wife as the beautiful bride her Savior sees her as. If there's one particular point in this sermon that was for me this week, it's this one. Husbands, lead your wives by viewing and treating your wife as the beautiful bride her Savior sees her as. Now listen to me. The assumption here, as this is the assumption with Paul, is that there's a husband and a wife here, and they're both believers, okay? That's the assumption here, so I'm going to operate with that assumption. That both the husband and the wife are followers of Jesus Christ. That's who Paul's writing to. So I'm going to continue with that thought here. In verse 27, he says this, So that he might present, so he cleanses her and washes her and so on and so forth, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That he might be holy, that she might be holy and without blemish. Okay, now listen as I set this up here. Much of our struggle as men and women, as Christians, is because we don't understand how God views us. Or if we understand it intellectually, we certainly don't remember it experientially. Okay? 
We don't live like we know that we are perfectly, morally, beautifully covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. How, how do you, how do you, Matt, how do you know that? How do you know that? I'll get to that in a second. As those who have been redeemed, when we forget that, when we forget how we stand before God, understand what's happened. In redemption, you are blind to your evilness, the fact that you're an enemy to God. Once you become redeemed, what happens? Your eyes are open to that ugliness. Right? That's the very that's what brings about and births the, as a part of regeneration where you begin you begin knowing, oh, I need God and I want God. Because you see the ugliness of your sin. Now imagine you are awakened to the ugliness of your sin, and then you forget who you are in Christ, covered by his blood. What are you faced with when you forget that? What's the only thing left? The ugliness of your sin. The question is where do you turn? So not knowing and believe, not believing by faith the reality of our status before God and now faced with our ugliness, where do we often turn? What's the only other option? Self-righteousness. Proving ourselves. Works. By our own means, we seek to make ourselves beautiful. Your wives do it. You do it too, husbands. How do we do this? A few examples. We do this by comparing ourselves to others. So when we can't think of ourselves, we're faced with the ugliness of our sin now because of, of the opening of our eyes by the Spirit and the Word, and we don't turn to Christ's righteousness, we have to compare ourselves to others. It's the only ones in which we could certainly find someone to which we are better. Or we do this by tearing down others. Particularly those to teaching us what righteousness and holiness and gospel living looks like. We do this by adorning the outside while the inside stays filthy. Right, you see this as the white, like washing the outside of the bowl, right? Fourth, another example, we do this through legalism. Certainly all this would be legalism, but we do this through legalism. And we have to be careful here too. You can become so against legalism that you become legalistic in your being against legalism. Give that some thought this week. But here's, the, here's what I want you to see. Like this struggle with how we view ourselves Compared to how God views us, we all do this. Our wives certainly included. But let's think about what this passage is telling us. Let's think about these words in verse 27. And particularly, it's application for husbands. First of all, I need to remind you that the church was chosen by God for Himself. That the church was chosen by God for Himself. Ephesians 1, 3-4. What's he say? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. Now, unless you want to do hermeneutical gymnastics here and make this text say something other than what it says. It says he chose his bride in Christ before the world even began. So the Father here chose the bride for his Son in spite of her sin. He picked his bride out of sin and death. He chose her. He didn't have to. He chose her. And then, what's Paul saying here? He says this bride that he chose, that 
verse 3, blessed be the God and Father who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ. He's blessed us in Christ, in the groom, as we will later find out. You see, the church is being prepared to be presented in all her splendor. What's it mean by splendor? This without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. It's sort of like this presenter in her all her glory, if you will. One author I read this week said, Not even the smallest spot will mar the unsurpassed beauty of Christ's bride when he presents her to himself. He goes on to say, hers will be a splendor that is exquisite, unsurpassed, matchless. You see, for the present time, the church on earth is often in rags and tatters, stained and ugly, despised and rejected. And Christ's people may rightly be accused of many shortcomings and failures. But listen here. God's plan is that His bride be holy and blameless. This is language that speaks of a beauty that is moral and spiritual. She is gorgeous. She is precious. And Paul, in one sense, is saying this is already done. And in another sense, he's saying it's yet to come. You see, the purpose of God's election of believers from before the foundation of the world is that they should be holy and blameless before Him. Why? Because that is His bride. His glory is displayed in doing such a thing. You see, the ultimate presenting, if you will, of the church in this glorious state He's referring to something in the future. Something that will happen. Something that will happen in the time to come. This transformation will be complete and we will walk into our Savior's presence. I mean, I don't think we remotely have any idea what that day is going to be like. Listen, Paul is communicating, listen, Christ's appreciation for the beauty of of his bride. For the glory of his bride. Now he's working all this. He's the one doing this. But the goal of Christ's sanctifying and purifying work, and thus the ultimate purpose of his sacrificial love for the church, is to present her to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. And what we learn here is that Jesus has done everything necessary to make this happen. Everything. The presentation of his bride will be in all its splendor. What we see from this text is that he is enthralled and captivated by the beauty of his bride. And he's making this happen. And we forget this all the time. Husbands, let me give you a couple exhortations here. First is this. Husbands must fall in love with the beauty of their redeemed bride. You must fall in love with the beauty of your redeemed bride. Listen, husbands, you are to express appreciation for the beauty, both internally and externally, of your bride. We need to understand, men, that one way you control your wife is by what you appreciate about her. And what you express appreciation for And we oftentimes do that in ways that serve just simply ourselves. And this is contrary to Christ's example. God intended us to be attractive to one another. One way we do this is by building up our spouse. 
I want to blow something out of the water for you for a second. Beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. You ever heard that phrase? Oh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Malarkey. Listen, husbands, you have bad eyesight. You have selfish eyesight. You have self-glorifying eyesight. The beauty is not in your eyesight. The beauty is in the Imago Dei. The fact that she's in the image of God. And the beauty is in the redeeming work of Jesus. That's where the beauty is held. It's not in your eyes. You need the Spirit and you need the Word of God to see the beauty in your bride. Listen, your wife will only be as rightfully and eternally beautiful to you to the extent to which you have a theology of the blood-covered bride who is made first in the image of God. You will only see her as beautiful to the extent to which you understand what the Scriptures have to say about Jesus' bride. Second to last thought here, husbands must express their attraction to the beauty of their bride. We, listen, we diminish our wives and our marriages when we do not tell our wives of their beauty as a part of our rejoicing in what God has provided. We diminish it. Listen, listen, church, our world, men particularly, like our world is telling our wives that beauty looks a certain way. That on the outside, beauty's got to look this way. And, and, and listen, I know there's like this big old like, well, there's beauty in every body shape and all that stuff. And, and all the, so the world's trying to like, it recognizes there's an emptiness and that beauty looks all this way. And so it's trying to revolt against that by saying, well, beauty can look this way too. What, they're still saying the same thing. They're still saying exactly the same thing. And then you get this, well, beauty's on the inside, and that means expressing yourself without hinder in whatever way makes you feel most like yourself. That's not the answer either. So the world is telling all of us, and particularly our wives, that beauty looks a certain way. And husbands, you must help her fight against that. And how do you do that? You remind her of her beauty and glory in nothing other than Jesus Christ. On the inside. Like, like it doesn't, listen, it doesn't just mean you tell her she is beautiful. What I mean is that you know the ins and outs of her beauty and you remind her of it all the time. You know her beauty deeply. Deeply. On the inside, you remind her of the beauty of a heart that loves God. You tell her of the grace of God's beautiful work in her life. Men, if you can't find the grace of God at work in your wife's life, don't look to her, look at yourself. Maybe you should do a better job of leading her to it. On the outside, tell her both her actions and her appearance are beautiful. Jesus is is looking forward to the day when his bride will stand before him. Beautiful. Last main thought here. Husbands, we would do well to remind ourselves and help our wives towards this reality. Revelation 16, I'm sorry, 19, 6 through 9. John writes this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Listen, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. 
Listen, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So how do we look at our wives and see this futuristic beauty that in some way is already a reality? You live by faith, so convinced and so certain of the Spirit's work and Jesus' promise to finish His work in His bride that it's almost as if you can see with your very eyes the finished work already. You can see it. You so believe and trust God that that's where He's going. I can almost see it with my eyes right now. And I can certainly begin to see it by faith. I mean, think about what, what that means when in times uh, of struggle or times of dispute or times of discouragement or times of sin. And where, where, where does our mind go? Listen, this is a more certain reality for God's people than even your own assessment of whatever situation you're going through. We live so convinced and so certain the Spirit's work in His bride. Listen, you live by faith in the Word of God and the Spirit's use of the Word. Man, I'll leave you with this thought. You should love her with a sanctifying love. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Father, thank You that You love us enough that You sent Your Word. That You sent Your Word and Your Son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And Father, that through Him, through Him, we have been washed, cleansed. Father, and I pray this morning that if there's anyone here that's not, that's not following your Son, Jesus, has not placed their faith and trust in the work of your Son, Jesus, that they would see that as beautiful. That you would open their hearts and their eyes to see it. To see it. Maybe for the first time ever. Now, Father, that we would look to this headship. That our women, that when they're struggling, as, as their husbands are and will fail at this, that they see Jesus' headship in perfecting and making beautiful their husbands. That they can so follow Him because of the guarantee of this work of Christ in their husbands. Father, please turn our hearts to faith in your Son, Jesus, and away from our own abilities and efforts. May we rest there, and may obedience be born from there. Father, for it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.